Have you heard the term concierge medicine and wondered exactly what that means? In short, it's the answer to the question, isn't there a better solution to my health care? Concierge medicine means virtually no waiting for your doctor. It means 24-7 access to physician care. It means truly individualized health care, all at a cost that's lower than you might expect. See pricing and learn more at PartnerMD.com. It's better health care for an even better you. On a cold winter's day, just before Christmas 1645, the gates of Skipton Castle were flung open. A small troop of men, perhaps barely more than a hundred, raised their flags and, carrying their weapons proudly, marched out under the watchful gaze of a much larger force of equally armed soldiers. With drums and trumpets sounding, the party was headed by their commander, Sir John Mallory, and their officers on horseback. The garrison walked down Skipton High Street before dispersing back to their homes in Skipton, surrounding villages, or, as in the case of Mallory, further afield. If they wanted, they were even given free passage to return to the side of the king in whose name they had defended the castle for forty months. It was a surrender, but a surrender with honour. Hello and welcome to the History of Skipton podcast with me. Today is a landmark as this is episode 50 of the series. It wasn't planned, but this episode marks one of the most important events in the town's story. I'm going to talk today about when Skipton became the last stronghold in the north, which was loyal to the King Charles I, finally surrendered to the roundhead forces of the Parliamentarian Army. Skipton Castle was an important centre of resistance to the parliamentary forces, and at the end, a loyalist island in a hostile rebel sea. It was besieged for three years, but it would be wrong to paint a picture of a permanent garrison of troops surrounding it. For most of the Civil War, the Royalists were relatively unmolested in Skipton and able to come and go more or less as they pleased. It was simply too strong too well defended for Parliament's troops to divert time, money and effort trying to take it by force. So it was more a series of little sieges, lasting a few days at most. Skipton Castle was a formidable obstacle. Strongly fortified, with larger outer walls than it has today, and a deep ditch, which is now filled in, it dominated the area. Its position was crucial, straddling the route between York and the royalist stronghold of Cumbria. Another reason for its strength was its cannon. Not only was it defensively impressive, it had considerable offensive potential. Skipton's great guns posed a threat to any offensive force which dared to come too close. Skipton's defenders would not just 
cart cower and bear the brunt of 17th century artillery, they would be able to dish it out as well. When in August of 1642, King Charles raised his standard at Nottingham, it was in effect a declaration of war against Parliament. The King appointed Lord Henry Clifford, the 5th Earl of Cumberland, as his commander of all his forces in Yorkshire, a decision based on Clifford's prestige and connections rather than his military prowess. As one contemporary put it, his genius was not military. By December, Clifford had surrendered his command to the Earl of Newcastle, a much better and experienced general. Even Clifford could see the need to ensure the castle's defences were up to speed. So, under the command of Captain John Hughes from nearby Rilston, powder, muskets and men skilled in the use of cannon and guns were sent to the castle and the walls were, in, were strengthened in anticipation of a coming conflict. A conflict known to us as the Civil War. Hundreds of carts were brought to Skipton, carrying stones to create a large mound piled up behind the outer wall. On top of the mound, the largest of the castle's guns was hauled. Here it had a better field of fire over the approaches to the south and east, and the added height increased its range. Other, smaller cannons were placed on the castle towers and flat roof. Within days, a safe haven for royal messengers was created, a crucial strategic requirement, given that Skipton was surrounded by parliamentarian loyalties in Keighley and Bradford. Hughes also set about recruiting a garrison of men from the town and local countryside. They were trained in musketry and wore special crimson colours. By the end of 1642, those preparations were to be tested as the Royalist cause suffered one setback after another. Skipton was effectively surrounded by Christmas 1642. Slowly, parliamentarian forces advanced towards Skipton, but they were halted when the Earl of Newcastle led expeditions pushing them back to Bradford. Members of the Skipton garrison were lost in these skirmishes. Edward Waddington, from Horton in Ribblesdale, for example, was killed at Settle, Thomas Bucock, from Skipton, at Thornton, and Thomas Todd, whose origin and place of death were not recorded, were all buried in Skipton churchyard. Henry Clifford was mainly at York throughout this period, but he returned to Skipton in December 1642 with his family and Lieutenant Colonel Sir John Mallory, an experienced soldier who took overall command of the garrison. Skipton was now even more of a military focus for the Royalists. Professor Richard Spence puts the number of men defending the castle at around 700, including 120 cavalrymen and 150 dragoons. Dragoons were infantrymen mounted on inferior horses, but thus giving them a greater range than normal infantry. Not all these men were billeted within the castle walls. 
And while the local householders may have had little choice in the matter, at least there was good money to be had for providing accommodation and food for men and horses. It was an expensive business maintaining such a strong force, and the burden fell in reality, if not in law, upon Earl Clifford. Some of the costs could be recouped from plundering parliamentarian supporters, but Clifford quickly wrapped, racked up debts in excess of a £1,000 to an assortment of local tradesmen. Nor was the garrison idle, waiting for something to happen. Barricades and checkpoints were thrown up on approaches to the town at Bolton Bridge, Addingham, Holton, Carlton and Gargrave to check any advance from the parliamentarian strongholds in Leeds and Bradford, which had outposts as close as Kildwick and Thornton in Craven. The parliamentarian base at Thornton was a particular thorn in the side of the Skipton garrison. With reinforcements of cavalry led by Lord Darcy, around a thousand men from Skipton attacked, but they could not dislodge the defenders from Thornton Hall, a fortified manor house which blocked the road to Cone and the west. Several wounded men were taken back to the castle before the royalists were counter-attacked by a parliamentary regiment commanded by Colonel, later General, John Lambert, who lived at Colton Hall, near Gargrave. Relatively fierce fighting took place at the foot of Elslack Moor, within sight of the castle. Casualties on either side were light, but it seems to have been widely accepted that the Royalists had been bested and forced back to the castle. Parliamentarian papers report another defeat for the castle garrison at Gargrave, where 15 men were killed, 25 taken prisoner and 60 horses captured. However, the castle accounts make no mention of such losses, so it's possible that this was nothing more than propaganda. The Earl of Cumberland, Henry Clifford, retained an administrative role for the King at his base in Skipton, but he suffered a personal tragedy soon after, when his 17-year-old daughter, Frances, died at the castle. After burying their daughter in Holy Trinity, the Earl and his wife left Skipton for the last time to live in York. There may have been another reason for his departure. The pendulum was swinging against the Royalists, and almost all of Lancashire was now in the parliamentarian hands. The garrison at Thornton and Craven was bolstered and the Parliament forces were now pressing in towards Skipton from the west and the south. York must have seemed like a safe haven to the Cliffords. The Royalist response was to go on the offensive and it resulted in an important victory for them at Odwalton Moor near Driglington outside Bradford on June the 30th, 1643. This victory restored Yorkshire into mainly royalist control and provided the inspiration for another attack on Thornton Hall by the Skipton garrison three weeks later. The men in the castle again linked up with reinforcements from Lord Darcy and this time they had more success. They forced their way into Thornton Hall before finally being driven out. 13 casualties of the battle were buried 
in Thornton and Craven. While ultimately unsuccessful in its primary goal of eliminating the Thornton threat, the imminent danger of being pressed in by the parliamentary forces had receded. Odwalton Moore had, for the time being, given the king control of Yorkshire once more, and Skipton was peaceful for much of the rest of 1643. The time was put to good use in repairing the castle's defences and acquiring as much guns, ammunition and gunpowder as possible. The lull ended in late November 1643. Colonel Lambert returned to his home turf. We know he was at Thornton in Craven on November the 20th. And he started recruiting under the noses of the Skipton garrison. Such provocation did not go unchallenged. A cavalry force from the Earl of Newcastle's army and supported by the garrison chased and attacked rebel troops at Lambert's home in Colton. The parliamentary troops took shelter in Ayrton Hall but were overwhelmed and 60 parliamentarian soldiers were captured and taken back to Skipton. The prisoners would have been reasonably treated and handed back in a prisoner exchange deal or for payment. Two men buried in Skipton that December were almost certainly victims of the Ayrton conflict. More ominously for the Skipton garrison, Lambert's activities in the area west and north of Skipton were not curtailed. Indeed, the route to Clifford lands and money in Appleby had been severed by the time 1644 dawned. More bad news for the garrison would have been the death from fever of Earl Henry on December the 11th. Henry Clifford was carried from York back to Skipton for burial in Holy Trinity on December the 31st. Castle historian Professor Richard Spence summed up his role. He wrote, if the Earl lacked the requisite martial attributes, his personal and financial contribution to Charles I's cause was worthy. There is recorded expenditure of over £5,500 on the castle and soldiers at Skipton alone. Sir John Mallory could not have expected any greater moral and financial support. Significantly, as Clifford had no children, you remember I said his daughter died just previously, the land now passed to Lady Anne Clifford, who was spending the war safely in London. While she was royalist in sympathy, her husband, the Earl of Pembroke, was a leading parliamentarian. As for the Earl of Cumberland, the title was raised to a dukedom and granted to King Charles' nephew, and the paramount royalist general, Prince Rupert, who became the first Duke of Cumberland. This meant that, technically, the castle was now owned by a parliamentarian, but was in the hands of a royalist garrison. Sir John Mallory was confirmed as governor of the castle by the Earl of Newcastle, but it raised a problem for the parliamentarian side. How could they now cause damage to a property which belonged to one of their leading campaigners? 
Another change was the collection of income from Clifford's estate, money which had been used towards the upkeep of the garrison. The days of the open purse of Earl Henry were gone. From now on, the Skipton garrison had financial troubles. So far, Skipton Castle had known security and relative ease during the Civil War. Earl Henry's death was to mark a turning point as the royalist fortunes plummeted, and particularly in Yorkshire. Soon the castle would be hemmed in on all sides, its sphere of influence much dwindled, and money and arms a constant worry. From being a stronghold, a base of royalist sympathy, its role was turned into a refuge centre for harried troops and officers loyal to the king. Its garrison, once several hundred strong, was reduced to a rump, of perhaps 150, although that figure fluctuated through the coming months. The cause of the trouble was the disastrous defeat of the Royalist forces in Yorkshire at Marston Moor between Weatherby and York in July 1644. In the lead-up to the battle, the parliamentarians had linked up with Scottish anti-royalist forces, and York was in danger of falling to them. The royalist response was to send its overall commander, Prince Rupert, north. He occupied Clitheroe, and then headed to Skipton, stopping at Thornton to capture and burn to the ground the troublesome hall and centre of parliamentarian rebellion. The prince stayed three days in Skipton, before heading to confront the combined parliamentary Scottish army now besieging York. The expedition was to end in disaster when the Royalist forces were crushed at the Battle of Marston Moor. Among the 4,000 Royalist troops killed were men from Skipton, such as Colonel William Prideau, commander of the Castle Dragoons, and Lieutenant Colonel Richard Gledhill, commander of the Castle Cavalry. Also slain were Skiptonians Captain William Goodgin and Henry Currer and Cuthbert Wade from Kilnsey. Captain Robert Tempest managed to escape back to Broughton Hall but over the coming days fugitives from the battlefield made their way to Skipton. Ten of them died there from wounds received at Marston Moor. The disaster was so complete that York capitulated, one of the terms of its surrender being that the garrison, down to less than 150 soldiers, was granted safe passage from York to Skipton Castle. And there, they split up, some joining up with the Skipton defenders, but most going home. By the late summer of 1644, the only parts of Yorkshire still in Royalist hands were Skipton, Knaresborough, Sandal, Pontefract, Helmsley, Scarborough and Bolton in Wensleydale. Skipton was also an important stopping off point between these outposts and Carlisle, also still a royalist town. But between them there was danger and hostility. For Mallory, men, money, food and ammunition were a major concern. There seemed little prospect of relief and the knowledge that sooner or later the 
roundhead forces would turn their attention to picking off the royalist cherries one by one. At least the nagging fortified centre of rebel activities at Thornton and Craven had been removed, thanks to Prince Rupert. It may have been desperation to secure weapons, or a show of defiance, which caused Mallory to lead 150 men, almost all his garrison, on a raid on Ripon on September the 26th. Horses, guns, ammunition and prisoners were taken. A measure of how strong the forces against Mallory was soon evident. The victor of Marston Moor, General John Fairfax, led 5,000 troops and marched on Skipton. He surprised the guards at Bolton Bridge and advanced on the barricades put up at Halton, where 50 dragoons promptly surrendered. This force then headed to Carlton before heading away again. Now, you might have thought they would have mounted a serious assault on the castle, but that would have taken time and resources. General Fairfax's main aim was to mop up remaining segments of Prince Rupert's army and prevent them linking up with the king's main forces in the south. He may also have aimed to reply to Mallory's own message. Either way, Fairfax was not ready to mount a siege against what was still, after all, a strongly defended castle which had powerful artillery to counter anything thrown at the defenders. In December 1644, Mallory was instructed to send the king an inventory of all his resources. This has not survived, but it suggests that the king's generals were planning a campaign to recover the north in the new year and wanted to check the strength of residual support. If that was the hope, the reality was that the royalists had lost the war. It was only a matter of time for the king and Skipton. Still, Mallory was not finished. On February 12, 1645, 150 men launched a daring raid on the Parliamentarian of Stronghold of Keighley. They took prisoners, 60 horses and 400 yards of cloth, but disaster was to strike on the return to Skipton. Colonel Lambert was nearby and was tipped off about the raid. He quickly gathered his men and attacked the Skipton men in a fierce skirmish. About 15 of the Skipton garrison were killed and 20 were taken prisoner including their leader, Captain Hughes, who was to die from the wounds inflicted upon him. He was returned to Skipton for burial. Holy Trinity's parish register describing him as the most valiant soldier. The noose was tightening on Skipton. Oliver Cromwell's victory at Naseby on June the 4th did for the South what John Fairfax's victory at Marston Moor had done for the North, it paralysed the Royalist command. On June the 15th, Carlisle surrendered to the parliamentary forces, followed within days by Pontefract and Scarborough. Mallory at this point sent his cavalry away to the Royalist base at Newark, an admission that the expeditions were at an end and the future was one of defending a siege. A new commander of the parliamentary forces in the north had been appointed, General Sydenham Points, and he took personal command of the army, which arrived outside Skipton 
in August 1645. The real siege of Skipton Castle had begun. Points arrived with little artillery, hoping no doubt to persuade the castle's defenders that resistance was futile. The barricades outside the town were abandoned and some of the leading townsmen fled into the castle. Points took up a position on Park Hill, overlooking the castle, and his muskets were fired. The spring leading into the castle was cut off, leaving only a small well to supply those inside, plus what could be gathered from the castle roofs. The next few days saw sporadic shooting between the two forces. Points also set up platforms for his artillery on what is now Rakes Road and on Middletown, although they were outgunned by the cannon which the garrison had been equipped with from the start of the Civil War. No casualty figures survive, but at Pontefract, the number of attackers slain outweighed the number of defenders by four to one, and Skipton is unlikely to have been diff any different. Points had another problem, however. His men were in a state of near mutiny due to non-payment of wages. In fact, Points thought himself in more danger from them than from the enemy. On August the 13th, after less than a fortnight at Skipton, Points was ordered to turn south to confront the king, who was heading for Newark as a precursor to an attempt to regain the north. The king never reached Newark. He was pursued across to Cheshire, where Points, who was given emergency funds to pay his disaffected troops outside Skipton, crushed the royal army at Roughton Heath outside Chester. And at Sherburne in Elmert, in October, the last vestiges of a northern royalist cavalry army was routed. A bleak situation had just got bleaker. Even so, the autumn of 1645 was one of respite for Skipton. The besieging army withdrew, the harvest was gathered in, damage to the castle was repaired, and the garrison sat back and waited for the inevitable return of the besiegers. The fall of Sandal Castle, its walls breached by four great cannon, showed what was in store for Skipton. It was clearly in the interests of Parliament to secure Skipton as quickly and as effortlessly as possible. And so, in November 1645, negotiations were opened in York with officers sent by Mallory to discuss the surrender of the castle. Against this was the backdrop of the capture of Bolton Castle on November the 6th, leaving Skipton alone as a pocket of royal resistance in the whole of Yorkshire. The negotiations came to nothing, and so Sir Richard Thornton was appointed commander of parliamentary troops with a specific task of forcing the castle to its knees. Newspapers of the time put Thornton's command at 2,000 men plus 2,000 cavalry and siege guns. This shows the considerable effort that was now being put in. But as the garrison was also reported to be short of supplies, nobody expected a lengthy siege. It began on November the 20th, 1645. And this time, 
the parliamentary leaders were not to make the mistake of running out of funds, as villages in the area were levied for the upkeep of the army, and a total of £180 was forced out of them. Evidently, the autumn lull had been used by Mallory to better defend the town, as it took three days to force an entry into the town of Skipton itself. Once they had retreated inside the castle, the defenders showed every sign of putting up a, show, a strong showing. One newspaper gloomily commented, This castle is not likely to be taken suddenly. It must be starved out, unless it has a mind to yield. Thornton's guns did more damage to the castle, its walls, the church and surrounding buildings. The cannon occupied the same or similar platforms to those constructed under points. And the marks of battle can still be seen on parts of the castle today. Things were worse for the townsfolk who did not cram inside the castle. Their food, fuel and houses were at the mercy of the roundhead forces, and the land around suffered destruction. For example, Parsifal Hall lost its lead roof. It was stripped and turned into artillery shot, and the timbers were used for fuel. For both sides, a negotiated surrender was the best option. Thornton was losing men, not so much because of enemy action, but more due to desertion, as weary recruits recognised that the end was in sight, and they seemed little point expending their time and energy and risking their lives to take one last point on a map. It was also a fierce winter, which made siege work in unfamiliar billets even more unattractive. Inside the castle, Mallory must have realised that supplies were finite. Negotiations were again open for the surrender of the castle, and this time they were swiftly agreed. The last royalist stronghold in the north of England had fallen. A parliamentary army of almost 4,000 men was able to head south to join the main roundhead forces to force the king back into an ever-decreasing circle. The terms of the surrender were generous. A copy of them survives in York Minster archives. The garrison was to leave behind all goods and provisions, arms and ammunition. However, they could march out with, as the term said, their horses and proper arms to the honour of a soldier, with colours flying, trumpets sounding, drums beating, matches lighted on both ends and bullets in their mouths. Article 6 and 7 of the Terms of Surrender gave permission for each of the besieged to either rally to the king's side or return to their home unmolested. The sick and wounded would stay in Skipton until they recovered, when they too were to be given safe passage home or to the king's forces. Colonel Thornton took over as castle governor, handing over to Lieutenant Colonel Henry Currer soon afterwards. However, it was not an easy time for the masters of the castle. Thomas Widrington wrote to his uncle, General Fairfax, that the Skipton garrison had mutinied and imprisoned two parliamentary officials. The king's ever-decreasing territory finally collapsed with his capture at Newark in 1646. Here the story might have ended, except 
that in 1648 there was another royalist uprising known as the Second Civil War, as Charles I made a doomed attempt to reclaim his power and authority using Irish troops. There was never a realistic prospect of success. But there was a struggle at Skipton, and supporters of the king did briefly regain control of the castle. But the resistance swiftly melted away, as Oliver Cromwell led a powerful force and chased the Scottish army sympathetic King Charles back home. Letters from Cromwell to Parliament show that he was in Skipton on May the 14th, 1648, and the parish register for May the 16th states that many were slain at this time. Knowing Cromwell's reputation, it seems unlikely that any who had shown disloyalty to Parliament were spared. The significance for the castle was the order from Parliament to slight Skipton and other castles in the north to ensure that they would be rendered useless in any future conflict. Slighting involves tearing down or destroying some of the castle's defensive points. So, in Skipton, the roofs which had supported the Royalist garrison artillery were removed. The cannon was sold off for scrap. Towers were reduced in height and outer walls partly demolished. In the town, many houses had been seriously damaged in the fighting or abandoned. Holy Trinity itself was badly damaged. This might have led to the castle becoming a ruin, a fate which befell so many Yorkshire castles. Happily, the arrival of Lady Anne Clifford as the undisputed heir of the castle was to prove the turning point. It was she who embarked upon the restoration of the castle, albeit with sloping rather than flat roofs, which we know today. I do recommend you to visit Skipton Castle. You can see the damage caused by the parliamentarian artillery. However, if you're passing the Black's Horse, the pub at the top of the town, within 50 yards of the castle, you'll see a notice outside saying that parliamentarian troops had been fed poison ale by the defenders of the castle. Unfortunately, there's no record of this happening at all. It seems just like a tall tale told by someone supping beer at the Black Horse Bar. Anyway, that brings to the end today's landmark 50th episode of the History of Skipton. Thank you for listening. We'll have more for you soon. a radio ad for an 8k tv that conveys the feeling of 33 million pixels with over a billion shades of color hitting your eyeballs this is the best we can do samsung neo qled 8k unreasonably good